0: Hello, and welcome to Conversations with Writers. Talking to writers about what drives them to tell their stories. Nazi Cows, The Minotaur, Julius Caesar, and Life on an Irish Farm. All of this and more in John Connell's new work, The Cow Book. John is an award-winning playwright, filmmaker, and Walkley-winning journalist, and he recently returned to Australia to talk about his latest work, which is part memoir and part analysis of the long and rich history of The Cow as Perpetual Companion. Hello, John. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, James. It's great to be here. John, the cow has been a constant companion for the last 10,000 years, I understand. Tell me about the auroch.
1: Yeah, so um, the auroch is the ancient forebear of the modern cow that we know. I know some people, their idea of a cow might be a black and white cow or a beef cow, but the auroch is their ancient forebear, um, and it was about seven foot tall. Um, It weighed twice as much as a a heavy bull would now, so uh, nearly a ton uh, or over. And they were ferociously wild. And they lived up until uh, very recently. Uh, The last one died in Europe in the 1700s. And in fact, the Auroch's horns, there's a set of Auroch horns in um, Cambridge or Oxford College in in England. Um, So they're actually the mythical animal that um, occurs in the German legends, and Caesar even wrote about them. Caesar, they hunted them uh, for sport and brought them to Rome uh, as part of the the Colosseum Games. So uh, this huge, ferocious animal is um, the antecedents of of our modern cow that's a rather docile creature
0: and and Caesar brought them from the Gauls wasn't it
1: yeah the the Gauls and the Germanic peoples used to hunt them and in fact uh, they it was seen as a great uh, triumph of masculinity to to be able to capture one and uh, and and take it down so they would build big pits to, to to bring them in and then they would fight them and the horns are if you've seen any medieval uh I suppose uh illustrations are indeed like shows uh, or movies where they're talking about it. the men are drinking out of these massive horns. those are oracorns um so yeah it it they've i think they've haunted the European imagination for centuries anyway, and in fact um the Aukch ties right into the modern era when the Nazis tried to recreate um the Auroch they tried to rebreed it uh by this uh, this crazy professor called Lutz Heck, and um, he tried to breed these Heck cattle. But actually, the really interesting thing was the first displacements of Jewish peoples happened because the Germans wanted to create uh, the Oroch again. They
0: Really? What, like almost like a Jurassic Park Yeah, sort of thing, they were I trying to create this back.
1: ultimate hunting ground uh, in Bilewice Forest, which is in Poland. And before they'd even invaded Poland, they had this plan and uh, they knew that the Jewish, there was a Jewish community there and they said, we'll, we'll kill two birds with the one stone. But the, when they invaded and took over Poland, uh, they pretty much set about straight away doing this and the, the Jewish community that lived in the forest were the first liquidated people. So actually, um, the Oroch, killed the very first uh jews in the holocaust which is a very sad sad fact but um uh, and needless to say the the heck cattle were bred they were not seven foot tall but they were average cattle height but um the polish people hated them so much because they represented so much that was wrong that they shot them very quickly after the war um so i think the breed survives in one or two small places but it's a it's a sort of a weird abomination creature so no one no one wants it because of the reasons it was created
0: it's fascinating that he's that hitler specifically his interest in geneticism actually or genetics continued even to the animal race
1: yeah i mean um it's fascinating like i didn't know that uh i knew about aurochs i'd read about them when i was a child but i didn't know anything about uh the the um yeah, their, their interest in, in in creating creatures, but they want hunting was a very big thing, and they were they were the all the the ring cycle and all that where they talk about the great Germanic heroes. That's what they hunted, and they wanted that perfect Aryan race to hunt the perfect Aryan creatures. Um, so it's. Pretty fascinating. But, I mean, it's not surprising. They were trying to breed uh, perfect people, so why not try and breed perfect animals, or, or in their eyes at least. So Yeah, purity uh, in all things. Then. Purity in all things, yeah. Wow.
0: Yeah. So then, where does the myth of the Minotaur come from, this idea of this mix of genetic coding between man and bull, the cult of the bull? Yeah.
1: So that's um, a very... When you look into it, it's a very, I mean, we all learn about the Minotaur, but when you actually look into it, it's really... Um, a lesson in man should not meddle with nature. Um, so the Minotaur uh, Minos pleaded with Poseidon to uh, give him this bull um, uh, to, to, I suppose, parade all the wealth that he had. But uh, when Poseidon wouldn't give the bull back, he put a spell on, or rather when Minos wouldn't give the bull back, put a spell on Minos' wife. And the wife copulated with the bull and the Minotaur was born. And it was in the book I talk about how this was the very first warning of man's interference with the natural world that we shouldn't, that we should respect our fellow creatures, um, our fellow sentient beings. Um, And really I tied it in in a way to the modern era where we're genetically programming cattle and uh, not just with selective breeding but It's moving on to uh, the modern era where they're trying to clone cows. They've already cloned sheep, so they're trying to clone cows now. So the the Minotaur is being recreated all over again, and we don't really know what the modern Minotaur will look like. Um, So the Minotaur, rather than being this ferocious creature in in, in the maze, is actually a reflection of ourselves and our interference with the world around us
0: how did that affect your understanding of cows i mean you've the book itself is a, is a telling of two stories one is the rich history of cows and then the second is a memoir of your time on your farm which we will come to so when you started looking at the history of cows how did that affect your understanding of them or relationship to them
1: yeah i mean where, where i come from in ireland uh the foundation myth of irish culture is surrounded by the thornbow coolia which is the cattle of coolie so our our uh, great myth, Our uh, uh, the English have Beowulf, we have the Tom Bokulia, the, the Scandinavians have Thor. So the cow has permeated my psyche in a sense in that respect, but I didn't realize that it had also permeated the psyches of other nations, um, and none more so than America, you know, the cowboy and the great cattle drives. And um, so it was... Really interesting to see that this creature that we have, Indo-European people have lived beside and along for thousands of years—that it has shaped our culture. And in fact, they're the only animal to change our evolutionary makeup, because Indo-European people evolved to drink cows' milk. I know a lot of people, a lot of people nowadays say you shouldn't drink cows' milk, blah blah blah. But actually, we've been drinking it for ten thousand years, and that's what made us. The, that's what made the Indo-European civilizations the most successful. Um, because there was a ready food source and it was available all the time and uh, of course the cow also had meat so uh, these people were able to move quickly uh, through terrain because they had a ready food source all the time and of course milk makes for stronger bones and bigger people so um, when I started to uncover that world initially I was going to tell the story of the cattle raid of Cooly because it's not known outside Ireland.
0: Is that the story of the brothers who end up warring? Yes
1: yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. So Cú he's our ancient hero, um, and um, and what uh, did he do? Well, Cú Chulainn, uh, his real name is Satanta, um, but he he was the great warrior from Ulster. Um, but he he when he was a young man, he went to work for. This chap and he killed his dog and uh, in killing his dog with a, a slither, which is like a, a cricket ball, uh, the master said, "You're going to have to be my hound now." So he became known as Cuhullin the Hound of Hullen, and um, he was—he's uh, our Thor basically. He's the ultimate warrior, and he—he's part of all the Celtic cycles and sagas, and ultimately he uh, is defeated in battle. And uh, he ties himself to this um, ancient dolmen, which is actually still standing in Ireland. And uh, uh, only then did the, did the men know he was finally dead. But he defended Ulster at a time when uh, the armies of Connacht were coming to, which is part of the Cattleway de were coming to destroy the men of Ulster. And a curse had been placed upon them. Uh, which was the pains of labour, so no man in Ulster could rise except for Cú Chulainn. So he fought all the men one by one. Um, ultimately, Queen Maeve sent, uh, who's the great, the evil person in the story, she sent his, uh, his friend Ferdia, and he had to fight Ferdia for a week, uh, every day for a week, and then ultimately he, he kills Ferdia, which um, broke his heart. Um, so yeah, Cú Chulainn is, uh, like all great mythological figures, is not without uh, tragedy um so he he forms a big part of our psyche and indeed when the um Irish revolution happened they commemorated the Easter Rising with a statue of Cú Hullan tied to the rock because he the ultimate sacrifice of the warriors because our bid for freedom uh in 1916 was a disaster but it precipitated the the the, the eventual war of independence so yeah he's uh Everyone in Ireland knows who he is.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Ireland seems to have this rich history of these legends and stories and and a commitment to tradition and even more so in the farming communities of which you grew up. And this is even to the point of talking and coping with death. You have said that you, when you die, will follow the traditions of your people, which is the the needing to keep the body in a house for three days. Why is tradition so important to you and to the farming community?
1: Well, I suppose farmers, you know, the earth is our natural inheritance, um, and as Irish people, the farm is our link right back to the to the Celtic times. So, for farmers, a lot of the traditions have held on because people who have left the land have modernised. Nothing wrong with that, but we have we have retained certain qualities in our culture purely because we're still linked to the land, the land that made us, the balya agus baha, that's uh, the the connection that we have. So um, I worked with Aboriginal people a lot in Australia, and um, it's the same thing. It's the spiritual connection, the driacht of uh, the land that makes you and sustains you. So you have to practice culture in order to live in it. So death is a very big thing in Ireland, and in fact, it's very normal. It's not uh, removed uh, from anyone um death is part of life it's in fact the center of life and uh, so when you die you get awake and you're laid out in your house uh, and all your neighbors come to visit you and um, and then you have a removal and a funeral and it's the, the wake goes back before Christianity uh, it goes back to, to to our Celtic faith and you know Catholicism in Ireland, the older form of it is, Christ- is 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 Celtic spirituality and Christian Celtic spirituality. So seeing God in nature. So um, we are we are playing out what has been done for thousands of years. In fact, when we're buried, we are buried that we face the rising sun rather than face the church. We face the rising sun, and facing the rising sun is what the Celts did because the sun was God. So uh, we haven't given like there is a whole underplay of of um the pretense of of christianity but there is a celtic spirituality still there and as farmers um i suppose i'm in touch with that um uh you know it's february the 1st of february just went by that's saint bridget's day and we weave a cross of rush um which are these reeds uh which which forms a cross and it's how saint bridget converted this chieftain but actually they say we've been doing it long before because Bridget was also a pagan goddess. So um, things have a way uh, of, 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 of absorbing themselves into the culture and changing, but still retaining their, their basic meaning. So.
0: But one thing you're definitely not a fan of touching is death. You wrote back in, I think it was the original story that got you noticed, Little Black, you wrote that you have a fear of death in the mm. sense of you, don't touch, you won't touch it in case you catch it
1: yeah um how does
0: that work when working? well on uh, that's
1: that's uh i wrote that when i was 20 i'm 32 now and uh, it's very different uh i think back then um the little black is the short story and i think back then i had uh like a young person i suppose i was afraid of touching dead people but now it's very normal like <laughs> i wouldn't <laughs> it wouldn't bother me uh at all in fact you know a friend died uh, recently cancer and. I went to his wake and you know, I touched his face, and um, I was saying goodbye, you know. And in fact, as a young man, of course, on the farm, I dealt with dead animals all the time. Um, but in touching a dead person, it, it, there was a scariness about it. But uh, as I said, uh, you know, you get older and you realize death's the center of life, so uh, that doesn't come into the equation anymore. Um, but uh, as a younger person, I see that with younger people, they're 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 afraid of these things. But um, I've seen people die now as well, and uh, you get you get the idea of what is a good death and what is a bad death. And um, um, when per- when a person gets a good death, there's um, something quite beautiful in it.
0: That sounds extremely Celtic.
1: Yeah. Well, um, you know, I watched my uncle die, and. Um, he, he had lung cancer and uh, my grandmother, his mother, was with him and she said, you can go now and he was scared and once she said that, he he relaxed and he passed on and then we had the wake and everything else and I wrote a piece for it and in fact, in a weird way, I've ended up eulogising all the people that have died in our family on both sides so I end up writing these very heartfelt things but it's kind of a tough job. I. I the place in Ireland there's a place for everyone. Um, and there is a place for a writer as well or a poet. and uh, it's at times like this that we, uh, in death that we rely on the written word. So I've been asked to write certain things for, for family members um, and read them at mass when, when they pass on. But yeah, so often it's, it's in nature that you look to, to give the reflection of that person.
0: You say in the cow book that um, when you've caught up with friends subsequently who live in the city and work in the city, you found one point you were telling a story about death on the farm and you thought it was a good story, but they just had no connection. It was almost this alarming response to your sort of yeah, storytelling. Uh,
1: I, in fact, uh, I never said it in the story, but the person was uh, Stephen Ray. I was with a dinner party with Stephen Ray uh, and um, I was I was telling the story and the guys were all, after finishing this play, uh, about about the troubles, and um, I was like, yeah, you know, that reminds me of this lamb died, and I realized just they didn't they didn't live in that world, and I was living that world now, and but I I had also lived in the urban world, so I could look back and I go, oh yeah, that probably seemed really strange what I was talking about, but uh, to me it was uh, that particular lamb I was talking about soul, and I was saying the spark of life, and I was saying wherever it was, it wasn't in that lamb. And I was quite delirious in the middle of the lambing season. I wanted, just some reason, I just wanted to will the life back into this lamb. But like, just, of course it wasn't going to happen. Um, and that's the funny thing when you see an animal die. It, it, it's like a person who, one minute that spark is there and the next it's gone. And, uh, and it's just, you know, when a person dies you can see the colour just goes from their face straight away. But with an animal you can't see the colour going from their face. So they're just... They're there and then they're not. And uh, wherever that divine spark is, it's, it's it's certainly not there.
0: Yeah, it's one thing you do capture in your book quite beautifully is the stillness of the of the animal when it does leave.
1: Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I remember we had one sheep uh, who got turning sickness and they foam at the mouth, and you know, she was in real pain uh, for a day. There's nothing we could do, and. um we gave her painkillers, like, uh, but there was nothing else we could do, and, uh, when she, yeah, it was actually the stillness was the, was the peace finally for her. I knew she was dead, but I also knew that her pain was over, and, um, with turning sickness, a listerosis it's called, there's nothing you can do, it's, 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 uh, uh, it's a bacteria that grows on, on moldy silage, which is fermented grass, and it gets into their brain, and that's it, like, they die, um and it was my fault that this particular sheep died i i didn't inspect the silage properly and i was like i i caused her death so um so often you know it's little things uh that can cause these things and in farming death's quite normal so you have to also understand there's certain rules and they go across species uh that the death is better outside the house than in it because if i die or my family members die like, there's no one to take care of those sheep um but and they certainly won't come in and take care of me so um and eventually you have to say it's only an animal um which you know the peter society certainly mightn't like me saying that but eventually you have to make that distinction it's it's every species for themselves And <laughs> you go well I can't fix this and and he's going to die and uh, or he's dead um, but uh, he's an animal and i'm I'm a human and uh, and and I ha- you have to draw that line because otherwise you're going to feel horrendous about every single animal that does so
0: this story the cow book seems to be your awakening to that fact or at least becoming comfortable with it and I think is that because you left the farm at a young age moved to Australia started studying became a journalist, worked out of here traveled. And then return, not expecting to become a farmer? So therefore you disconnected from that circle of life?
1: Yeah, I mean, um, I'd always wanted to come back to farm, but um, later in life, I, I thought I'd maybe in my 40s or something like that, I'd come back. But, um, of course, the publisher said he never intended to come back, and, you know, that's been a, the pitch of the book, but uh, it, it's, it's not been the truth. Uh, I always liked farming, and I loved whenever I would come home from australia the first thing i would do is go and see these go go and see the fields and uh because they were the things i missed because of course i was living in a very urban environment and i wanted to be out in nature um but 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 yes i was removed from the circle of life you know i was working at the abc or sbs whatever it was and you know i was eating sushi for lunch and i wasn't thinking about these other factors uh because they weren't in my life and 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 as an urban person uh these things aren't in your life so you can't um blame people for not thinking about the murray darling fish kill for example all the time because they don't see the river all the time uh they only see the thing on tv you know and and that's the thing with rural urban divide we, we don't see each other's worlds uh so uh it's even and it goes the opposite way a country person goes well, they, what are they doing like it's not that hard of a life or whatever like they get to go and have coffee and dinner whenever they want but actually they don't understand the pressures of an urban life so um having lived both it, it's, it's it's allowed me to see both worlds but certainly coming back to the world of farming um was an awakening and uh um it it showed me new things that uh new old things uh, that I had forgotten.
0: Your farm is located in the county of Longford. Tell me about it. Describe it to me.
1: Well, my mother and father started the farm when I was about five. They had both come from farming families themselves, um, but had no land. And uh, my mother and father had a uh, mobile home they first moved into, and then my dad is a builder and he built a house. And um, as their businesses started to do well, rather than by... Buy properties or apartments, they decided to buy land because this was the thing they knew this was their culture and um so i I took part in 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 farming since I was five so I, as the farm grew and more property was bought to add to it uh so did we as kids um so the life kind of revolved around the farm in so many ways, and um you know i' learning how to work. I learned how to work on the farm first and then in life and, and and the skills of working on the farm gave me the gave me the skills to be able to be a good worker in in life and I think young people so often don't know that skill um to actually know what it is to get up and do something uh in the morning and and finish in the evening um and of course the great thing about farming is when you do do work there is a visible result uh so fencing or whatever it is, you can you can say, I started this at 9 o'clock, it's 6 o'clock now, I've done all this, I've fenced these four fields or whatever it is. Uh, or the cows are here and now they're over there or they're milked and they weren't this morning. These are tangible things, whereas sometimes... In, in the accounting world or something like that, you can't, you say, well, I, I worked on the spreadsheet all day, but like, I, I, if someone asked you, can you show me? You'd say, well, you know, these numbers are now in the right-hand column and they were on the left. Uh, and I've balanced the books, but I, I can't show you the books. So Yeah, it's, it's,
0: it's that intangibility of the tactile.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the, the tactileness of it. And, and that armed me uh, to be a journalist and, and, and a writer and a filmmaker because particularly journalism and film are very tactile as well. Um, and, and and in particular, film, because there is tangible uh, video evidence at the end of the day of here's what we shot.
0: So. Do you think it actually encouraged or built within you this level of empathy that you've been able to take into your journalistic career in Australia when you came here and where you've won your Walkley Awards for with working with refugees and also with um, covering the Indigenous story in mm. the heart of the Northern
1: Territory? I think um, it did. There's two things, you see. Um, I was talking about this yesterday. Ireland is a post-colonial nation. Um, We were part of empire for 800 years. So the people I talk to, particularly indigenous people, are also the children of empire. So there's an inherent understanding between me and them uh, because we are both the colonized peoples. And there's a lot of... I'm not talking about inherited trauma. Certainly there is bits of inherited trauma, but I'm talking about I get what they are, where they're coming from, um, and I understand it. And as a as a fellow person of empire, it's I have a responsibility to also uh, talk for and with these people because I understand the crap they're going through. Um, so I've always had a relationship there, and I, I worked with the Navajo in America in 2017 on another story, and. Um, Yeah, I've understood that and and empathy then, the empathetic quality, I think, has come from my mother. She's a very caring, empathetic person and um, it was just something that was engendered in me from a very early age that uh, you must care for your fellow man Um, and as a journalist, uh, I've had the opportunity to defend people's rights and that's what real journalism should be about. it's great to read the pop articles and celebrity gossip, but uh, occasionally, real stories come along and uh, they can actually make a difference. Um, and and uh, that's when you see the power of, of of that profession. And so you have to be empathetic. You
0: left journalism and returned to, to the farm after a rough period, first mm. off in Australia, and it allowed you to, during that period of time, to write The Ghost Estate. Mm. That again comes back to this issue of empathy, which is to tell the, the tragedy of working-class Ireland during the global financial crisis. What drove you to tell that story?
1: Um, I was sitting in my office in UTS at the time and uh, the IMF were about to roll into Ireland, uh, this the International Monetary Fund, to bail us out. And uh, well, we had bailed out the banks and the place was just completely gone bonkers. And... Uh, this idea came to me. I'd signed a book deal with Picador here in Australia um, two year, two or three years before, two years before, and I couldn't think of anything to write. And then this idea of Gerard McQuaid, this Irish electrician, popped into my head. And I, as a young teenager, had worked on building sites with my father, so I understood this world. Though it wasn't my world, but I understood it, and I thought, here's a way to tell um, the story of the GFC from... Uh, an ordinary person's point of view and uh, the end of the book actually was the thing that came to me first and uh, when I finished I was working on a film project for SBS um, and when I finished it I said I'm gonna write this book and foolishly I thought I'd write it in two months and uh and having never wrote a book before but I thought yeah everything else has been pretty easy so why don't I just do this knock it out in a few months but that took you know about two years and uh I didn't know the rules of writing a book then either, of course. So it took a while, um, but yeah, the, the the only way through it was to talk about it from the working class level because these were the people who were the princes of the boom, um, builders. Builders made a lot of money and uh, were held up in a lot of esteem because Ireland hadn't had an industrial revolution and hadn't had a renaissance, so there was nothing built. So all this building had to be done and all this cheap money had come to to, to facilitate it. So the builder was the perfect way to tell that story. Um, but I made a mistake in writing the book. I spent too long on it and uh, um, it it it. I was trying to pull in all this stuff. There's a second storyline in it about a, an English landlord in the 1800s and I was trying to do too much and show off a certain, oh, I can do this and I can do that. And, and really, the book might have been a better book if it had just been the story of Jared McQuaid. Um, but I think I wasn't confident enough to just write that simple story.
0: Is that because of the honesty it required or this this commitment to character? or
1: It was probably the commitment to character. And also, I, I didn't have enough self-belief as a writer. Uh, if it had been journalism, that would have been fine. But as a writer, I I'd, I'd, I'd only wrote one real short story, and I got a book deal. And uh, so to write a whole book was like, this is full on. Uh, and in fact, before I'd wrote that short story, I'd been told by several people, you're not a very good writer. So <laughs> uh, so it was kind of a bit daunting. And I was helped in all of that by David Malouf, who's been my friend and mentor for since, uh, since I was 22. So David kind of guided me on where to go. Um, and what to do, and some of the advice was very sage, like like he used to say, the answer uh, to where you need to go is written in, is hidden in what you've already written, and things like that. But it makes perfect sense. But I think it was a confidence thing. I just didn't, uh, I just didn't think that a simple story would be enough. But actually, simplicity is um, the best thing in literature. Actually, at times, uh, certainly with the cow book, that's what I found that simplicity. Simplicity is a lot harder to do, and it requires the reader to, and the writer to take uh, more of a chance. Um, and uh, in simplicity, we can find deeper meaning.
0: The Cow Book details your preparation to write the Cow Book, almost the journey it takes of how long it takes you to become yeah. comfortable with moving away from being a farmer and the impetus you need to become a writer. And a lot of that seems to be focused around your relationship with your father. And this is a story of difficult men finding it difficult to have genuine conversations. Yes. Yeah. And you say that you only connected via the sheep.
1: Yeah, look, um, me and da, um, as I call them in the book, and <laughs> as I call them in life, my father, Tom, um, we uh, we'd, we'd talk about history when I was young, but um, when I went to Australia, I suppose I had grown up and... Uh, I came back and they still thought of me as this 20-year-old or 19-year-old before I'd left. So they didn't realize I'd done all I'd done in Australia. And um, uh, the sheep was a way for us to communicate, and the farming, in a wider sense, was how we would talk. Um, and uh, it proved a useful device, uh, and at times, you know, it's been frustrating, but the men of that generation don't talk about things. so. Um, it's been uh, it's the sheep was something new. We'd only got into sheep in the last four or five years. And um, oddly enough, my father wasn't very good with them. So he'd rely on me to help uh, particularly deliver the lambs. So it was a way for us where we were both equals to talk. And uh, and um, it proved to be um, a saving grace, really.
0: The natural question is, of course, has he read the
1: book? Yeah, he has, yeah. I mean, um, my parents were a little bit apprehensive at first and then uh, the book kind of just took off and exploded in Ireland and uh, people were stopping them in the street uh, saying, we read the book, it's amazing, and that's our family too. And so, you know, there's a big row in the book with me and my father. um, But actually, uh, so many people um, have seen the universality in it and people who are not from farms have seen the universality in it that my parents have realized that there's something very special here and so my father's just enjoyed every minute of it we there was the irish book awards uh, was in november and he was with me and uh when i won he couldn't he was so excited he was just like he's won he's done it like he's done it you've done it and uh, uh and i said yeah and i was quite calm and collected i was like yeah yeah i was like yeah i've done it yeah that's fine and uh so he's Because my parents never saw, I had a lot of success here in Australia, but they never saw any of that. They only heard about it. So they don't know what a Walkley is. uh, They don't know what uh, some of the awards I won are. But um, they were able to see the success of the book here in Ireland, or in Ireland. And uh, that's been something that they, it's tangible. And they go, okay, he's on telly, he's talking about this, or he's doing this radio show, or he's in the paper. These are things we, we get, and we're proud of that. So he's loved it all.
0: Did he take any credit for it in the sense that if he perhaps didn't have that absolute blowout with you, this may never have happened?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, he he does. He has a running joke now that he's he's uh, two hundred for a signature, so he's two hundred <laughs> bucks for a signature. Uh, um, he yeah, I mean, uh, he, he's never said that that it was a good thing that the row happened, but it was a good thing that the row happened because. Uh, he realized that there's a certain point that he couldn't push me uh anymore and uh that he had to not see me as a as his boy anymore but see me as a man.
0: Uh, Do you think you needed it though as well to sort of push yeah. you back into writing? Because yeah, to break I did. you from I mean, being the farmer? Yeah, I mean
1: yeah, I I think it was it was good. It was um it gave me a break from all of that. I'd come back t- I'd the Ghost of State had come out in Australia, and, and I had come back. I said to um, my girlfriend, I said, I'm going to go back to Ireland for a few months and see if I can write a book. I'm going to see if I can finally make a go of this. And I wrote two books before it, and neither of them were published. And um, and, I, and one was about JFK and one was about the Syrian refugee crisis, and I realized neither was about me and write what you know. And so it was in the row that finally forced me, in a sense, to write what I know, and writing what I know was, I'm a farmer's son from Longford, uh, yes I've done a lot of other things, but at the heart of it that's, that's where I'm from, and, uh, and that's oddly the thing that has brought me the most success. Um, it's kind of strange, uh, going back to one's roots, uh, it seems a cliché, but uh, maybe some clichés are true for a reason.
0: It also explains why when looking at some of your most recent work like The Birds of June, and even in the piece that you wrote online about opening up about depression, Mm. it does all circle back almost to the very beginning of Little Black, which is your strongest stories are those that connect to the farm and to the cattle and the families involved. Yeah,
1: I think, um, you know, as I've gotten older, more of my stories are rural-based and... um, You know, I wrote The Little Black and I was living here. I was living in Coogee at the time. I think uh, that's where I'm from. So my base level is I understand rural life and rural politics and small-town politics, Um, writing uh, uh, short stories that are urban-based, which which I have wrote, but they're... um, I don't have the lived experience enough of it to be able to understand the minutiae of it. So, as a result, there are people who are better at it than me and 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 they should write them, you know. Um so, yeah, you, you must write what you know. Um uh, I was listening to Amy Tan the other day uh on the radio and like, you know, Joy Luck Club and all this and she's a Chinese Chinese American woman. She writes about that. She doesn't pretend that she's X, Y, Z, and writes about this, or Richard Flanagan is a writer I really like, he writes books about Tasmania, because uh, he's a Tasmanian, and he understands it, and uh, even even his historical stuff, like Gould's Book of Fish, that's still uh, set in Tasmania, it's set in the land he knows, and the history he knows, so uh, what was wrong with me writing rural stuff, and that's what I know, deep, deep down, uh, so in a way it was my birthright to be writing these things
0: did that give you a level of comfort once you sort of unraveled that and really found that this is what i'm meant to be doing
1: yeah it has and you know um it's allowed me in a weird way because rural ireland is obviously modernized now it's allowed me to write about contemporary issues as well like i wrote a short story about a mother who's dealing with a son who's a junkie uh in rural ireland and we have junkies in rural ireland now um which is, you know, that didn't exist when I was a kid, but it's allowed me to deal with contemporary issues, and and uh, I think it's um, it's, it's it's worked for me. Yeah.
0: Speaking of rural Ireland and contemporary issues, you mention in the book that it's still got an element of the wild west about it that there are people that there's bandits or groups of bandits roaming the countryside these days because of a lack of police but the stealing of cattle is manifest that within I think you say within 3 or 4 years there's been 10,000 cows stolen or something like yeah,
1: that yeah um it's extraordinary yeah i mean it was a, that's uh a, that's a fascinating thing you know um and actually it harks right back to the cattle Raid of Cooley because it's on the border area between Northern Ireland and, and the Republic that all most of this is happening and I live near the border. And uh, so, yeah, cattle, sheep were rustled. Um, people went back to the old ways when the GFC hit because there was no money anymore. And so stealing cattle and uh, changing their tags uh, for a different herd or bring them to Northern Ireland, re-register them or backstreet butchering... Um, and you just find a bag of bones somewhere um bones and the hide uh happened and a, you know a butcher would buy the meat or whatever that went on a lot and in fact cattle hadn't been stolen for a long time and then all of a sudden it was happening all the time um thankfully it's quieting down a little bit uh because you know there's a bit more prosperity in the country again and the economy's recovered but it was a fascinating uh it was a fascinating thing that, that all of that happened um, and uh, it was a scary time because farms kind of became outposts and it wasn't just stealing cattle, there was break-ins and stealing of machinery which is still happening a lot or fuel and uh, there's kind of a weird no man's land in the law where you can shoot thieves who break into your property but then um the thieves could sue you for uh, harming them, and but you're you're defending yourself. So it's been really uh, it's been really strange. And we know we know people who've who shot thieves, um, not killed them but shot them, uh, who were trying to break in. Uh, so we felt alone in that time, and particularly when the GFC hit, a lot of the police barracks in small rural Ireland closed because the budgets weren't there to keep them open. So not only were we left alone with all these thieves. There was no police at all, literally. so it was literally lawless, and you were on your own like there was a neighbor of ours um p j and he was- he's an elderly man and he was disabled and he was robbed about five or six times and you just you knew that he had become a mark that the the guys were like in fact, the day of his brother's funeral, he was robbed uh they after he came home from everything they listened they uh, so in Ireland they play the debts. Uh, there's a death announcements on local radio so when people die they five times a day they play who's died and because we all want to go to the funerals because of the tradition with death but then what the thieves were doing was listening to the deaths working out who what family it was and realizing that there would be no one at the house and they'd go and rob the house so i remember when my sister got married all of our family left to go to the wedding so we had to hire a, a security guard to guard the houses because word would have been out that we were get, she was getting married, and there'd be no one at these houses. It's an open and
0: invitation, it, to open fever. invitation
1: to rob places. So, um, yeah, it was a it was a really really rough time, um, and you know we're just coming out of it now. But people are also feeling that rural Ireland has been abandoned in a certain sense by the government, who are very urban focused now. So it's been uh, it's been full on.
0: Tell me about the king of travellers within this lawless land.
1: Yeah, so in Ireland, there's a, an ethnic minority group called the Travelling People. They're Pavi people, and um, they uh, they've travelled. They they're called travellers because they, they don't have fixed abodes. They live in caravans, um, and. Uh, there are uh, there's a king. Uh, he's a voted king, and the king lives in Longford. Longford happens to have a, a very high number of traveling families, and the king is kind of the arbiter of of good and bad, and he says what goes or what doesn't. And my uncle is uh, a local undertaker, and um, he buries the traveling people. And a lot of there's a lot of racism towards travelers. So David uh, David deals with them, and they 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 like him. So when he when he finishes the job, he goes to the king and the king pays him. Um, and uh, it, you know there would there's a big taboo in travel. It's they're gypsies, so there's a big taboo around death. So they would these are people who are thrifty with money and would do people with money, but they would never do people with money around death because uh, their belief is that if they shortchanged Davy. Uh, which they might do in another dealing, like if he was buying anything else from them, but they wouldn't shortchange him because they would believe that the person wouldn't get into heaven, uh, that their soul would stay in limbo forever. So Davy is always paid on time. Uh, and he would never ask for any more than he would charge for anyone else, which some other undertakers would because they'd say, well, travelers are a lot of trouble and there's usually a lot of violence at the funerals, but um, there'd be infighting with feuds and, and things like that, blood feuds. But um, with Davy, that doesn't happen. It's a very ordered thing, and they respect that. And uh, so there's never any feuds or fighting. And uh, so they pay him, and and but the king decides all this. And if there's trouble, you you need to go to the king and talk to him, uh, which there can be. Wow.
0: And ha- and how often is the king replaced? And wh- and how do you replace a king? Uh,
1: I don't know. It's it's well. Sometimes it depends on the clans. Like sometimes it's down to bare-knuckle boxing is really big in traveller communities so the king might have been a great bare-buckle boxer and defeated everyone else so it's a physical contest or they would be come from a line of kings or they could also be just seen as a very wise clever person and it's agreed that they're going to lead the the clan and the community so um, it really harks back to a very different older Ireland but Traveller people are are still very much in Ireland and uh, still very much a part of it. And in fact, The Birds of June, the short story you mentioned, is about traveller people and the racism towards them Um, because a lot of Irish people are very racist towards them.
0: John, your family seems to be deeply connected to some of the most interesting people in Ireland. (laughs) (laughs) And, and (laughs) And I'd like to finish with you perhaps telling us the story of the circus and the strongman.
1: Ah, yes, okay. So there's an ancient legend uh, in Greek mythology about a man who in the very early days of the Olympics, he trained and he lifted a calf over his head, uh, Milo of Croton. And um, he used to lift a calf over his head every day. And eventually when the Olympics came around, these are the ancient Olympics, he was strong enough to, to do it. So this circus came to town my, my grandmother's people were the Mullins and this circus came to town and the strongman was there and there was a big weight and they said, if you can best the strongman, you'll win um, you win a pound, which I think was about a thousand uh, euro uh, in today's money. Um, so it was a lot of money and my granduncle um, lost the first year. So what he did was, uh, like the legend, of course, he knew nothing about the legend. Um, he had a calf, and every day he used to lift the calf, and he got stronger and stronger. And eventually, a year, the next year came around, and of course, a calf grows a lot in a year. But he was strong enough to lift the calf then uh, over his head still. And so he was, I can imagine the man must have been a total beast. And <laughs> the strong man, the huge. strong man arrived, and uh, he he beat he beat him, and uh, he won he won the pound or the hundred pound, and uh, and. Um, yeah it's just kind of went down in 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 family lore so the great thing about writing the book was all of these stories like that I got to put down and so that people could remember uh and also that the future generations of my family could know because my grandfather was born in eighteen ninety and he met my mother when when he when he was fif- my grandmother when he was fifty and she was eighteen so i'm only uh I, I, we're, I'm only you know the his father was born in the famine most people that's six generations ago for me it's only four you know everything's very recent so as a result the storylines go back a lot longer so I wanted to remember them in some way uh so that even only a small number of them could survive so that other people would know about it whether it was th- the titanic the aunt of the titanic or um uh, uh, the strong man um so that that these people their great feats wouldn't be forgotten um and that's i think the power of the written word that the ordinary story uh everyone has an extraordinary ordinary story um because we're all extraordinary people um and uh sometimes uh those stories can be lost so the cowbook allowed me to to save some of them
0: john it's been an absolute joy to speak to you today and thank you one for the cowbook and two making the time
1: today Thanks very much, James. Joy to be here.
0: And you can find The Cow Book online and in stores right now. You can follow John on Twitter at jconnellj2. That's at jconnellj2. And you can find us at ConversationsWWC, even easier. Next month, we're talking to J.P. Pomari about his breakout new novel... Call Me Evie, where we take a deep dive into the psychological theory behind his psychological thriller. This has been James Rickards for Conversations with Writers. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening.